Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to two passages of Scripture for our time together today. First, I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 14. And when you get to Romans 14, I want to ask you to take your pen or a note card or something, hold your place there, and then turn over just a few chapters later in the next book to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for our main text today. Now, if you're watching, of course, online or even here in the building, I was not originally planning to share Romans 14, so you won't find the words on the screen before you, but if you got your Bible open to Romans 14, you can find that there in just a moment. This morning, we're preaching and looking at the subject, simply this, glorifying God in everyday decisions. Glorifying God in everyday decisions. Today, we're continuing on in our sermon series entitled, Have You Lost It? Right? And by asking that question, have you lost it? I'm not asking, have you lost your mind? Have you lost the keys or have you lost your cell phone? I'm assuming you've all lost those a time or two in your life today. But when I ask, have you lost it? I'm specifically asking, in your life, have you lost sight of the glory of God? In my life, in our lives, have we lost sight of the glory of God? To speak of God's glory is to speak of the revelation of all that he is. It's to speak of his greatness, of his power. It's to speak of his uh, majestic nature. It's to speak of who he is. It is God's glory that evokes a response from us. God's glory always leads us to a time of praise or to a time of worship. It leads us to that response of surrender to him. So far in our sermon series, we've been looking specifically at the Israelites and how the Israelites literally saw the manifest presence of God. They saw the glory of God. And yet, like so many of us, they got distracted because God didn't work in the way they thought he should and God didn't work when they thought he should. They got impatient. And in their impatience, they ran ahead hastily and turned their attention to themselves instead of focusing on God. Today, we begin to think about the glory of God specifically and how it impacts our thoughts and how it impacts the way we make decisions in our life. So let me just pause for a moment and ask you that question. What is it in your life that motivates you to make the decisions that you make? What are the types of things that cause influence, if you will, and impact the way you process and decide things? For example, some are motivated by time and urgency, always looking for the most urgent need or situation, and that is what affects their decisions. Others make decisions based upon pressure, pressure from others or pressures from, that are self-imposed by their own uh, realities. Some choices are motivated by popularity and by people who just give advice and direction in our life. Other decisions are made by self-interest and self-desires. We make those types of decisions when we begin with statements like, I want, I, I feel, I think, uh, I, I believe. And when we make those I statements, ultimately what we're showing is, is that we are our motivation in the decision that we are making. But what if I told you today there is a better way to make decisions? What, what if I told you there was a specific way by God's word and will that was a better way to make decisions based upon things that would bring glory to him? See, in 1 Corinthians 10, God is dealing with the illustration of the Israelites. We've already seen how the Israelites saw the glory of God, and yet they rushed ahead, and the Bible says they, instead of worshiping God, they turned to their own selfish desires. In their impatience, the Bible says, literally, they took their gold earrings out of their ears, they gave them to Aaron the priest, Aaron takes these gold images, he carves out a golden calf, he sends it into the fire, and then when out comes the golden calf in Exodus 32, and the people declare, look, Israel, here's your God who brought you out of Egypt. In that moment, they were committing a sin in the Old Testament called the sin of idolatry. But please understand in that moment, idolatry is not merely just the sin of putting things before God. It basically was living a life focused on self. In that moment, what they were saying is this. We understand God is here. We understand how he's working. We understand what he's doing, but we want to go our own way. We want to worship that's about us. We want to worship based upon our desires and our preferences. We want it about us. 
And it's in that context that God speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to remind us if you know Jesus, if you are a child of God, if you know that you're saved, we have a higher calling. It is a calling to glorify God. Some might ask, well, pastor, why have we been in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 32 and how does that impact our lives today? I mean, after all, the culture we live in today is so different than Exodus 32. I don't have any golden calves in my backyard, okay? But I wanna remind us that the Bible says in Romans 15 verse four, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, before the verses we're gonna read here in just a moment, it is this exact illustration of the Israelites in Exodus 32 that Paul gives to a New Testament application to call us to abstain from idolatry, to not live our life for ourselves, but for the glory of God. Listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses six and seven and verses 11 through 14. Here's what he says. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they, the Israelites, also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. For as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. For no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Notice when God speaks of the Israelites' action, he literally says they did this because they craved evil things. Time out for a moment. When you think of evil things, what comes to mind? For me, when I think of evil things, I think of murder. Or I think of some of the terrorist things that we're seeing in the context of the world today. I think of various forms of injustice and abuse. When I think of evil things, I think of someone who, who harms a child. But when God speaks to the Israelites, he says to them, their craving was craving of evil things. And when he's speaking that, he's saying that directly in regards to what they were worshiping. Because frankly, they neglected a worship of God and substituted it for a worship of self. A religion, a worship that was all about them, their wants, their pleasure, their purposes, and even their own glory. That's a challenge for us today. Because frankly, we live in a world today that the world will say, hey, if it's right for you, then it's right. If it's good for you, then it's good. There is no wrong. If it's, if it's what you want, it's what you want. So you do the best you can be. And yet God tells us in his word, there is a higher calling for us as believers. Glorifying God in everyday decisions. How can we make godly choices when we live in such a self-focused ungodly culture. And I believe God answers that in our text this morning. If you're physically able to stand to your feet, would you do so? As we read God's word here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, the Bible says this, all things are lawful, but not all things are, what's the word? Profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things do what? Edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Verse 31, listen to this statement. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all. Somebody say all. all. Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. So be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for these moments together. God, I confess today that at times this is a difficult passage of scripture. So God, would you speak to us through the Holy Spirit to mold us, to shape us, to convict us and change us in whatever ways you see fit. I pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Glorifying God in daily decisions. I don't know if you've noticed in recent days lately, but there's a lot of things in our culture and world that can divide us right now. Would you agree? We live in a day today where you can say one simple statement in the context of social media, and this side over here is going to be mad as a hornet, and this side over here is going to be mad as a hornet, and by the end, you're going to be wondering, why did I even say anything at all? That's the culture in which we live. This is a day in which even as a pastor, I can send an email that just simply says, hey, can you pray for so-and-so? And some are gonna read it this way, and some are gonna read it this way, and somewhere in the middle is probably the truth of what needs to be said. It is a greatly sensitive and divided culture in which we live. The Apostle Paul dealt with a similar situation at the church at Corinth. There was no more destructive issues in a church than what we see in the New Testament in the church at Corinth. There was division, there was chaos, there was confusion all over the place, and yet the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks words of truth, words directly from God to say, thus says the Lord. And what the Apostle Paul does in this passage of scripture is this, even in the midst of a divided and sensitive, offended culture, he calls us as believers to get our attention above these things, to focus them on the Lord, and to realize as a child of God, we have a higher calling. We have a higher calling. In other words, we are not of this world, and as a result of that, we are not to live like this world. In fact, we are in it for the purpose of being a light for the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time, we have the challenge of this. How do we do that in a culture that is greatly divided? And I believe loud and clear, it begins with our thinking, it then leads to our decisions, and it leads to the actions of our life. So how should we live? How should we make decisions in our life? And I believe Paul paints for us four truths about Christians that should impact the way we make decisions with our life. And if we will process every decision through the filter of these truths, I think it's gonna radically impact the way we live our life and ultimately the influence that we have for Jesus. If you're ready to learn, would you say, I am? am. All right, I'm glad you are, because I am too. All right, number one, if we are going to live in a way that we make everyday decisions that glorify God, we must begin with this truth. We are called, Christians, to edify others. We are called to edify others. Paul says aloud and clear in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. The word edify literally means to build up. This is one of our core values here at Crossing, that we exist, one of the purposes to edify the church. And that means literally in the body of Christ that we each do our part, that we use our gifts and our resources and the breath and life God gives us in a way that we serve one another, in the way that we share with one another, and in the way that we support the work of the Lord generously. We build up one another. Ephesians 4 says it this way, the way that the body is built up itself in love is through each individual part. Every single one of us. That means that I need Jeff and Jeff needs me. That means that I need Buddy and Buddy needs me. Donna needs me and I need Donna. Like the reality is in the body of Christ, we're brothers and sisters. We each have a part and a role to play to edify the body. The idea of edifying others is that we are focused on what is good and building up of others, not self. That's difficult for us. We live in a culture and a world that literally says, think of self, live for self, and build up yourself. Our culture does this because it's focused on making man his own God. We assume that if we are our own little G God, then there is no true God and no one with which we will stand before and give an account. But God tells us in his word and reminds us that Christians are not called to live for self, but to live for the good of others. That's why Paul literally says, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. In other words, we should not be making decisions upon what is best for us, but what is beneficial and profitable for others. To understand this better, I think we need some context. Paul in this passage of scripture lists three different groups of people. First, he says, there are the Jews. The Jews are the people, of course, living in Jesus' day. We have the Old Testament who largely records the details of them. But as Paul writes this, they were largely a people who were very religious. They had the Old Testament law. 
613 commandments that they were living by by the time that Paul was alive and living and, and preaching. And, and these Jews were, were, were living and saying, listen, if we're gonna honor God, we gotta keep every single law, every single rule, every single commandment. And then there were some Greeks. These are the Gentiles. These are those who didn't have that Old Testament law. They were just hearing about the, the God Jehovah. They were just hearing the gospel message of Jesus that he came and died on the cross of sins for the very first time. And then in the middle of that, you have the church. The church were those individuals that were hearing about Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, and they were repenting of sin and putting their faith in Christ. And the church at Corinth was made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. What could go wrong, right? There was no shortage of opinion on just about every single matter. And the issue at hand in this moment specifically was the issue about what they could and what they couldn't eat. And we can understand that. Because the Old Testament Jews, they had all sorts of restrictions about what they could eat, but the Gentiles have been eating whatever they wanted to for years. And now in Christ, they're all in one church. What are we going to do? Well, in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, these believers, both Jewish and Gentile believers, they understood loud and clear that there were temples that were established with false gods, false idols, and people were going to them to worship these dead, lifeless, man-made gods. And the Christians knew, no, 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 we know we should not go to those temples. We should not worship another God. God said, have no other gods before, and we're not gonna do that. We love Jesus. We're living for him. We're worshiping him. We know we shouldn't go to those temples to worship a false god. But what about the meat that is offered to them? See, as a part of those, those, those pagan worships, what, what would take place is the unbelievers who didn't believe in Jesus they would bring their offerings and their sacrifices there and they would offer their animals as a sacrifice to their false god. And much of the meat that was offered in sacrifice would then be sold in the markets for people to purchase and eat as a family. And so the question is, okay, we know we can't worship false gods. We can't love those things. We love Jesus. But can we eat the meat that's been sold in the market? Can we do that? Would that defile us? Would that be offensive? Is that a wrong thing to do? What should we do? And the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter eight, and he says this, there is only one true God. And therefore all the little G gods, all the false idols of the nations, they are no God at all. So as a result, yes, with a clear conscience, those who have this knowledge can eat the food. To them, food is just food. However, there are those who do not have this knowledge. They are in essence, weaker brothers. They don't have the same understanding. In their case, to eat of this meat that's been offered to idols, it would actually cause a stumbling block and an offense. Listen to what Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians chapter eight. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, food causes my brother to stumble. Listen to Paul's personal conviction. I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. You know what Paul's saying out of conviction? Paul's saying, listen, my life is not to be lived for my rights, my wants, my preferences, my convenience, but for the glory of God and for the edification of others. Now, now I'm gonna be honest with you. And I'm not being trivial. Listen, I grew up in the South, okay? A meal's not a meal unless you got meat on the table, all right? But here's the question. Do I have such a conviction about God and his word that if eating meat was a stumbling block, I'd be willing to say, I'm gonna be a vegetarian if that's what it means. I'm not picking with many vegetarians. That's, that's totally fine. That's, that, that's your preference. But here's the bottom line. What Paul is saying is this. I'm gonna live my life and make decisions about what is beneficial for others and not based upon my own rights and wants. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 says it this way. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Because of the culture in which we live, in our culture, it is easy to seek what is profitable for us. What do we want? What is our will? What is our desire? What do I feel? What are my rights? Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you know Jesus, this is not Christ-like. The question at hand is not about what is profitable for me, but what is profitable for others. When you face that decision, we need to begin by asking that question does it edify others? Let me illustrate that in maybe a practical way and maybe in an extreme way, but I hope it paints the picture and expresses the point. Please understand what I'm about to say is not a matter of salvation. I'm not even saying necessarily that it's a matter of sin, 
But I think it begs the question that in all things, and illustrates the point, we need to stop and consider not what is my right, but instead, what is profitable for others? Several years ago, a good pastor friend of mine and I were sitting down and talking, and this guy loves the Lord. He's a mature brother in Christ. Uh, by God's grace, I hope that I am as well. And we, we've encouraged each other through the years. But he was planning to do something in his church. He wanted to start a small group of some specific men that he was going to begin that frankly was very different than most, okay? And that is, and I'm not criticizing him, but let me just kind of paint the picture here. He wanted to start a time of Bible study, which sounds great, but here's how he couched it. Here's how he, here's how he promoted it. It was gonna be a beer and Bible time, right? I'm not saying that was a matter of sin or that it was a matter of salvation. But the reality is that's what he did. And sure enough, people began to come and people began to engage. And he and I had some incredible dialogue. And, and walking through that conversation, it was so good. I think that the Lord might have used me to help challenge some questions for him. God definitely used him to challenge some things in me and help me grow in some areas that I needed to grow. And, and we tried to sharpen each other through that process. Because in that moment, he was thinking of his right. He was thinking of the opportunity. And, and frankly, his goal was good in the sense of his desire to reach men. The challenge though in that setting and situation is, in that environment, what was partaken of in moderation, when difficulties came in life, when struggles came in life, when one had a child who was deathly ill, when one had a spouse that passed away, the difficulty in that moment is what was partaken of in moderation in that setting, when those men in private were in private, it eventually turned to something of excess. So what turned from a small casual thing in Bible study amongst with a pastor turned into a private thing in the causes of these men's life and then three, four, five years later, I remember that same pastor and I sitting and talking and praying together as he shared with me the sad truth that three of the men from that first group were now alcoholics. Two of those three men, because of other decisions that came out of that, were then going through divorces. And he was wrestling at that time then with the question, wait a second, wait a second. Though it's lawful, it may not be profitable. Now, please hear this loud and clear. I'm not preaching a message of legalism. I'm not being your Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. That's not my role. That's not the reality. Here's the truth, though. I think what God is calling us to do in our life is, in our life, to take everything before God and examine it and, 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 and challenge, is this edifying others? Will it benefit them? How will this help others grow in the likeness of Christ? Turn to Romans chapter 14 for just a moment. This pastor scripture is so powerful. In fact, we could probably park on the first phrase of the first verse for the rest of the day. But Romans chapter 14, listen to Paul's conclusion as he's thinking about what edifies others. Verse 13. If you're there, would you say, all right. He says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Time out. What a message for today. See, see, Paul's primary motive in this situation is this. He said, listen, get your attention off of what so-and-so is doing and what so-and-so is doing. Get your attention off of that post and that post, their opinion, their opinion. Get your attention on God and really examine, is my life and my action edifying others around me? Is it in accord with what God has for me? Stop judging one another, he says. But rather determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For it is because of food, if it because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God, listen to the statement, is not eating and it's not drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, here's a summary. We pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. 
And hearing that today, we get all bent up out of shape. Oh, well, well, this is what we need to do and this is what they need to do and they shouldn't be doing this and they should be doing what well, God is saying, listen, each of you, child of God, look to him and truly examine is my life and actions edifying others. Second thing he calls us to do is this. We are called not only to edify others, we are called ultimately to examine our actions under this microscope. Do our actions bring glory to God? Verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Truth be told, I cannot think of a more simple and practical verse of scripture than maybe this whenever he says, now listen, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. I would imagine today that most of us eat and drink things throughout the day without much thought. How much we eat without thought probably depends upon the type of candy in our candy jar, but the bottom line is we do. When I was on sabbatical, my last four days or so, I had the opportunity to go to a cabin in Virginia and it was me and it was the cabin. I had my Bible and a journal. There were some Virginia cows outside and there was a jar of peanut M&Ms on the side of the table, okay? Huge full jar and it miraculously disappeared in about three or four days, you know? Like, I don't know how that happened, it just did. Fact is, we eat things. We take a sip of water, a sip of coffee. We don't put a, a whole lot of thought into it. But what God is showing us here loud and clear is this. Even in the practical everyday actions and decisions, we can bring him glory and honor. John Phillips says it this way, even such mundane things as eating or drinking can, should, and indeed must be governed by the unifying factor of the glory of God. Why? Because of what he tells us in 1 Corinthians 8. There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. Listen to this statement. We exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Please hear loud and clear. He's calling us to live for God's glory because the reason for your life and the reason for mine. The reason you have breath right now and the reason that I have breath. The reason that I have a clear mind and that you have a clear mind. All of it is this. We exist for God to bring glory to him. And so he calls us in that to recognize everything we do, whether we eat or drink, we are to do it all for the glory, honor, and praise of the Lord God himself. The question then is this, are we doing that? Is our life, our thoughts, our decisions, our actions bringing glory and honor to God in all that we do? The Bible says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That phrase, whatever you do, does not mean that you can do whatever you wanna do and get God's stamp of approval on it. That's not what God's saying. That phrase, whatever you do, is literally God saying. So and whenever your actions you're taking, take them, examine them, and seek, are you bringing glory to God in these things? Did you know that the things that God has given us as desires, times even needs, the things we pursue in life, we can give God glory through these things. Or we can seek to fulfill them in a way that brings glory to self. Let me illustrate that for just a moment. Just a few simple ways. If we seek to glorify God in these things, we will enjoy fulfillment and peace in honoring God. However, if we seek to glorify self in them, it can lead to pain, heartache, and great loss. Let me illustrate that. Let's begin with the illustration of food. Did you know we can enjoy food to the glory? Like, we can enjoy food to the glory of God. When we accept food with gratitude, recognizing its provision from God, when we receive food in a way that we're looking at it as nourishment for our bodies, it is a means by which we can bring glory to God. However, we can also partake of food in a way that's not glorifying to God. We can be critical and grumbling about what we're getting, like the Israelites did in the Old Testament. We can be consistently consuming things that we know are unhealthy to our body. That doesn't bring glory to God. Or we can practice no self-control and commit the sin of gluttony or overeating. Oh my goodness, when was the last time you heard a message on that, right? I don't know that I've ever preached a message on the sin of gluttony because I'd have to repent too much. But the bottom line is, <laughs> did you know that in Proverbs 23 that gluttony is mentioned with the same breath and the same results as drunkenness itself? With food, you can bring glory to God or you can bring glory to self. Secondly, we can enjoy rest for the glory of God. And all the young mamas say, amen, right? Literally, when we take time to rest, 
When we take time to get sleep, adequate amount of sleep, when we take time to be still in the presence of the Lord in the midst of the crazy and busyness of the world, to sit still just to focus on the goodness of God, it's a place of rest and it brings glory to him. But when it's fulfilled in an ungodly way, it leads us to laziness and slothfulness and at times not even doing the very thing that God gifted us and created us to do. Number three, did you know that we can enjoy sex for the glory of God? When sex is experienced willingly in a marital relationship between one man and one woman, it brings glory to God. After all, God created it and he gave it both as a gift to mankind and for the purpose of procreation. However, many seek to fulfill this same desire in ways that do not bring glory to God. In fact, without even realizing it, many dismiss God's glory by using sex as a means to glorify themselves, their wants, their desires, or to glorify others, their wants and desires above the will of God. Number four, we can enjoy work to the glory of God. Somebody said, not my job. Yes, your job. You don't know my boss. When we practice Colossians 3.23, as we work unto the Lord and not for men, but with a willing spirit and a joyful heart, knowing we're doing this for the Lord, it brings glory to him. Can I just remind you, Christian? You should be the best employee in your entire business. Your work ethic and your attitude and your integrity about yourself and the excellence with which you serve should literally cause you to be the exemplary employee in the entire business. And yet, when we approach work, complaining, focus on self, grumbling, always criticizing, backbiting, getting in on all the gossip, we're not glorifying self and not God. Did you know that we can even pursue wealth to the glory of God? If we operate business with integrity and wisdom with the goal of living and giving generously to the Lord and to others, even the attaining of wealth can be the, to the glory of God. But if we're simply loving our money, hoarding it to ourselves, we must remember that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs, 1 Timothy 6.10. So pastor, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. Our goal, if you know Christ your Lord and Savior, is this. We're not living for ourselves anymore we're living for the one who loves us, the one who saved us, the one who set us free. We're living for him. Our ambition, according to 2 Corinthians 5, is this. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what's been done, whether good or bad. You're approaching that decision? First question, does it edify others? Second question, does it bring glory to God? Three, third truth. We are called, Christians, to exalt Jesus. We're called to exalt Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 32 and 33. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. Now, let's just pause just a moment and be honest, right? When I read verse 32, my first thought is, that sounds impossible. Give no offense to the Jew, to the Gentile, or to the church. How can you give no offense when just about any stance you take in the culture is going to offend someone? Right? Anybody else challenging there? I mean, I'm a little challenged, just to be honest. How can I give no offense there? But what Paul does in this next statement shows us as. Because what Paul is saying is this. Guys, there's gonna be all sorts of issues here. The meat, the, the meat offered to idols was the issue at the day. There are gonna be all sorts of questions about masks or mandates or vaccines. All sorts of, you're gonna have all sorts of moral issues. You're gonna have all sorts of political issues. You're gonna have all sorts of preferential issues. You're gonna have all kinds of issues in the culture. But here's what you do, Christian. First off, quit judging one another. That's not getting you anywhere. And get your attention above all of that. And recognize beyond all the noise that eternity is at stake. Your preference about these temporary things in the grand scheme of eternity do not matter. But what does matter, what does bring salvation to man's soul, what will determine whether they spend eternity in heaven or hell 
is your proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So live your life with a clear purpose, not to be spending time on these other secondary things, but for the glory of Jesus by proclaiming the gospel. That's what he's saying. We're called to exalt Jesus Christ. That's why he says in verse 33, I please all men in all things so that they may be saved. Does this mean that Paul likes all things? No. Does it mean that he accepts all things, approves all things, likes everything going on in the culture? Of course not. It does mean, however, that Paul never lost sight or was distracted from the main thing. Beyond the temporary debates and struggles, Paul knew there was eternity at stake. He did not allow his preferences to get in the way of his God-ordained priority of sharing the gospel with others. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 19, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, and then let me illustrate this for a moment. Listen to what he says. This is so powerful. For though I am free of all men, hey, my rights, my liberties, though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. Why would anybody do that? So that I may win more. He's not talking about his own personal victory. He's talking about winning people to Jesus Christ through the gospel that he's proclaiming. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Listen to this statement. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the what? Gospel. Not for the political party. Not for the various messages and agendas of the day. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And critics will look at Paul and say, wishy-washy. You're gonna become all things to all men. He's he's the original flip-flopper, right? I mean, he's over here and over here and over here and over here. But there's a problem with that statement because God has it on permanent record in his inspired word that Paul was simply doing whatever it took to proclaim the gospel and point people to Jesus. The bigger question is this, in your life and mine, is this. Am I doing all things for the sake of the gospel? Are you? The truth is he refused to let his view of secondary matters hinder the opportunity to point people to Jesus. And frankly, I wish I could say the same of myself. I wish I could say that I never got caught up in the the political issue of the day or I never got caught up in all the debates and the, the nonsense of it all. I wish I could say literally I did all things for the sake of the gospel without hindering and all these other secondary things. But the truth is I, I can't say that. Now, I hope it's a lesson that I'm learning and growing in, but can I just give you a, maybe a lighthearted, very lighthearted practical illustration of how I had to learn this the hard way in my life and certainly as an early pastor Many of you know that I'm from Alabama. If you don't know that, please forgive me, I'm from Alabama, okay? Uh, being from Alabama, I tease a lot about sports and football because I'm an Alabama football fan. And for those of you who asked, yes, I did pray a little bit more yesterday afternoon. Okay, thank you for asking for that. All right? Well, when the Lord called me to pastor, the first church that I pastored was in a place called Christiansburg, Virginia, almost two hours south, in the backyard of Virginia Tech, Okay? Somebody said, that's right, okay, yeah. Honest truth, I I think it was like during this interim process, I was living in Lynchburg and working on my seminary degree and I was driving back and forth multiple times a week and before I was even a pastor, I will never forget going there on a weekend and one of the men in our church, a man that I came to love very, very dearly, he said, hey Matt, um, I've I've got some tickets to the Virginia Tech game, I'd love for you to go with us to the game. And so I went for the very first time to Virginia Tech football game and in the process I learned that he was an alumni, and not only an alumni, and a very prominent alumni, and we had like perfect seats right at the 50-yard line, and I went there in all my Alabama gear, okay? <laughs> Honest truth. I showed up, and I was respectful. I didn't criticize or anything like that, but I let it be known amongst all the alumni, roll tide. Okay, that's just how it was. 
And I began to notice over the first two or three years that I pastored there, people would pick with me about this. And, and, and this is no joke. Whenever people were thinking, you know, just kindly or, or wanting to show like pastor appreciation or just whatever, when people were being generous in that context, 99% of the time when they would give me something, it would be maroon and orange, Virginia Tech chickens. I mean, Hokies, Virginia Tech Hokies right there, okay? And, and I, I got all kinds of Virginia Tech stuff and, 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 and the Lord blessing that. And I got to go to many games with this guy. And, but I have to confess, honest truth, something in my proud, rebellious, sinful nature, the more people tried to make me a Virginia Tech fan, the more I resisted, Right? In my mindset, no, I will never be a Hoagie fan. I am an Alabama Crimson Tide fan. But I took it a step too far. Because the more they picked with me about it, the more I picked back. I'm, and, and some of them got a little, little overboard. And even in that context, sometimes I would be, I'd be preaching and sometimes I'd be talking. And there's a family that's here that might can attest to some of this. But the reality is, is that even at times when I was talking, at times, if I noticed somebody, someone might be falling asleep, I would just use a joke about Virginia Tech and they were awake instantly in the middle of the message, you know? Or if they were losing attention and they were drifting off, I could just say something about Virginia Tech and instantly they were focused back with me and get right back. And that was all fun and games and lighthearted and whatever. Until one day, there was a family in the church that asked to meet. And I could tell by the way they wanted to meet that something was wrong. So when I sit down with them, we begin to talk. What I begin to quickly realize is I had picked on Virginia Tech in such a condescending way that they were offended. Now, when I told that in the 930 service today, everybody laughed, right? <laughs> but the truth is, in that family, both the husband and wife worked at Virginia Tech. And the truth is, their child, who had some very significant health and learning disabilities, received incredible opportunities and help from Virginia Tech. So every time I said something lighthearted and sarcastic and facetious or whatever to try to kind of pick at the Virginia Tech fans, every time I said something critical, what they heard was, he is tearing down the place that has blessed our child and our family so greatly. That family did leave the church. We are in good fellowship today. But can I just tell you in that moment I learned a very convicting truth. And that convicting truth is this. We can't settle for secondary nonsense when there is eternity at stake. See, in that moment, and, and thankfully this family are believers and they're walking with Jesus now and are in a, in a very healthy church that, funny enough, I recommended to them. But the bottom line is, I missed the opportunity to minister to them because I was so focused on my secondary preferences of things that did not matter for eternal value. Please understand, people are being drawn to Christ or turned away from Christ by the ways we show Christ in our lives. When we focus on our divided by and obnoxious about secondary matters, we are likely to cause offenses that discredit the ministry that God has given us. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses one and three. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. Could it be the reason that the church has lost its voice in society today is this, that we have caught, we've got so caught up in secondary debates that we've lost sight of the Savior, our mission, and our motivation to bring him glory in all that we do. I submit to us this morning that if the people in our life know more about our politics than they do our personal relationship with Jesus, we've probably lost it. If the people in our life know more about our condemnation of the world than they do our concern for it, we've probably lost it. If the people in our life know more about our personal opinions and preferences than they do our love for them, we've probably lost it. You know what I had to learn to do in Christiansburg? I had to learn to wear the Virginia Tech shirt. I'm joking when I say that lightheartedly, but the truth is I did learn to wear it. I did go to the games. I did build relationships. 
And out of that relationship, God did some unique things. My very last semester in ministry there, and some of you can attest to this because you were there, one of my dearest friends who worked in the administrative financial departments of Virginia Tech passed away very unexpectedly. And when he passed at Virginia Tech, all these administrators and staff, faculty, many different officials came to that memorial service. And that day they heard the gospel. And that day a lot of the walls and the barriers that would have been there were completely torn down because there were relationships that had been established. And many of them came to faith in Christ. What are you saying? I'm questioning, asking, saying the statement. When it comes to making decisions, does it edify to others? Does it bring glory to God? Does it exalt Jesus and point them to him? And finally, we are called to emulate Jesus. Our action should come out of a desire to follow and emulate the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Please understand, Paul did not get this idea of living for the glory of God and the good of others because it was a man-made opinion. The apostle Paul didn't get together with the apostle Peter and the apostle John and say, hey guys, what do y'all think about this? This is not a man-made idea. Where did Paul get the idea of living our life for the glory of the Father and the good of others? Here's where he got it. He got it from watching Jesus. He says this in chapter 11, verse one. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Paul's saying, listen, as I know Jesus and I'm getting to know him more, as I'm seeking to follow him and follow his example in my life, I'm simply striving to do those things and it's leading me to glorify God and live for the good of others. Where did he learn that? He learned it from watching Jesus because Jesus was the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet the Bible says in Philippians chapter two, by the hand of the apostle Paul, that he humbled himself and he emptied himself of his glory. And literally he became, he took, put on the form of a servant and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. When Paul looked at Jesus, he saw someone who constantly lived his life for the glory of the father and the good of others. And my hope and prayer for us today is that first and foremost, that we know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. If you're here this morning, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. I, I'm the chief of those. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that the wages of our sin, it brings us to death and to separation from God for all of eternity. But the gift of God Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, raising again from the grave, and through that, this gift of God called salvation, he offers it to all who believe in him. My hope and prayer today is that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you do, my hope and prayer is that our lives are governed not by how we feel, not by what we want. Well, I think such and such, no. No, our lives are governed by the glory of God. When we're facing those decisions, everyday decisions, God, what would you have me do that brings glory to you? God, how can this edify others? God, how does this exalt Jesus? And how does this emulate him to the world around us? Truth be told today, many of us know people in our life that don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. They can't physically see Jesus with their eyes but they can see us. I wonder today if when they see us, do they see Jesus in us? And if not, what's preventing that? What's hindering that? What, what stumbling block is there that causes them not to see Christ in us? What is in our life that we need to wrestle with today? Ask God for wisdom in. What is it that we need to confess and turn from? I don't know what it is in your life. But my hope and prayer today is that we'll not leave here with a spirit of offense. There's a lot of landmines in this message where we can all leave offended. And I could be offended by your offense. <laughs> a lot of landmines today, right? Here's the deal. God's calling us to look to him, to seek him, to live for his glory and for the good of others. And so my hope and prayer today is that where those areas of offense are and where those areas that we're wrestling over right now, most likely that specific area is the area that God's wanting to show us something. So I pray that we'd press into it 
Repent where we need to. Turn where we need to. But ultimately, that God would change us to be more like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the ways that you speak to our heart and life. Lord, I confess that today, uh, this message was, was really, in many ways, a difficult message to, to preach and to deliver. And, and I imagine for, for many here, it was difficult to hear. But God, if through the Holy Spirit, you would speak to our lives, that you would be the one to convict us and to guide us and lead us and change us. It'd all be worth it. And so, Father, through the Holy Spirit, you are a much better communicator than I am. So, God, I pray that you would speak clearly. God, if there's areas in our life that we have sinned against you and maybe we've condoned it or we've excused it or just kind of gone ahead, done our own thing. I pray, God, if we've sinned against you, that you would convict us so that we could confess it and be forgiven and be cleansed. God, I pray if there's areas that we've lost sight of what's really important and we've settled for secondary matters, I pray, God, that you would convict us of that so that those areas in our life that are a hindrance to the gospel, that discredit the ministry, God, that you would reveal them so that we would turn from those things to focus on what is most important. God, I pray for that. God, if there's areas in our life that we have compromised and become complacent, God, would you open our eyes to that so that we would not be blind to our situation, but that we would be receptive and responsive to your leading. God, I pray if there's anyone here today that does not know Christ as their Savior, that there would be a sense of urgency in their heart today. Lord, we, we see the evidences of brokenness all around. And, and it seems that every week I'm being reminded of how short and how fragile life really is. God, thank you for the opportunity that you give us today to be right with you, but we are not guaranteed that opportunity again. So God, I pray today that for those who need salvation, today would be the day that they receive it by faith right now. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.